0: Well, church, I'm sure many of you know our dear sister Elma Walker. Her husband Don was a faithful member here for many years. Uh, Don and Elma live in Pike Township, and when we had the opportunity to uh, be a part of the Ortho Indy uh, Foundation Y M C A we uh, were given permission to name the chapel in the Ortho Indy Foundation and we named it the Don and Elma Walker Chapel uh, at uh, the Ortho Indy Foundation. Isn't that wonderful? Here's another, uh, another picture. We're just so thankful for Alma's faithfulness as a widow, and uh, she reads the Bible like a sage saint, right? Such a wonderful gift, and uh, Ortho Indy today is hosting our uh, newest church plant, One Fellowship. I've seen pictures already of the uh, setup and everything else, so God's doing some great things there uh, already. Today we're in the Gospel of John chapter three. We've taken a six week break. We talked about four weeks ago about what our Antioch moment is. And even the launch of One Fellowship is directly connected to that Antioch vision which is that we would be a ascending church, regularly deploying our people. And uh, that's part of the the vision of uh, who we are and who we want to be, Uh, part of the reason why uh, at the end of the fiscal year right now I'm happy to report that our attendance is 2% above what it was this time last year. That's important because we keep sending people away and as a church we want to keep growing and sending, not just to grow to grow but to grow to send. And also, just so you know, this is the end of our fiscal year, so we operate on a March to April fiscal year. The budget is strong. Your giving has been healthy. It's been above last year, as it has been for so many years, 2% above budget. We're always just a little short of our... Our, uh, our, our annual budget needs, so we're coming in uh, close and tight. We've adjusted expenses accordingly, but thank you for giving. Uh, we've seen more uh, giving this year than last year, and that's, that's always encouraging. And then we're thinking about Easter. Eric mentioned that, and I, I want you to be thinking and praying with us about who you would invite to be a part of our Easter services. I wanna remind you that this is the moment in the calendar year has the most ripe opportunities for uh, inviting people to come with you to morning uh, worship on Easter, so please take every opportunity that uh, the Lord provides you. Today we're in John three sixteen, and this is a familiar text. And that has both an opportunity in it and a challenge. The challenge is, is that you could come to church today and be like, "I got this, John 3:16, "For God so loved the world." All right? You can kind of have that perspective. And uh, because you know the text, you could think that you know what the passage is about. So that's the challenge. The opportunity, though, is for us to dig deeper into this text and for us to really think about, now what does this passage really mean? And for that matter, how could I take the posture and the tone of John three sixteen and live it out this next week and even use it as I think about how I talk about the gospel? As I talk to people who are not yet Christians, how can I use the environment that is here in this text? For God so loved the world, the Bible says. Of the 30,000 plus verses in the Bible, I am fairly sure that this verse is the most known verse in our culture. If you were to turn on a basketball or a football game and you see a sign that has a scripture verse on it, it's probably gonna be John 3.16. I'm not thinking that it's gonna be Romans 3.23 or something of that sort. It's gonna be, be John 3.16. Um, if you go to In-N-Out Burger, on, underneath the cup on the rim is printed John 3.16. Every drink cup has that on it. Some of you may remember that when Tim Tebow played in the national championship, underneath his eyes, he had John 3.16 printed, and that led, after his victory, to 94 million people Googling John 3.16, which at one level is cool, and another level is kind of discouraging that that many people didn't know what it meant. If you're a monster truck fan, if you're a monster truck fan, you'll know that Devin Jones has John 3.16 painted on his truck named Barbarian. <laughs> if you're a country music fan, Keith Urban has a reference to John 3.16 in one of his songs entitled John Cougar, John Deere, and John 3.16. Sounds like a country western song, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so listen, I could give you, I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative about country western music, I'm just, I'm just saying. So. Uh, I can give you many more examples. The fact of the matter is, I think you'd agree with me, John three sixteen has sort of made its way into the contours of our culture at lots of different levels. It's one of the most popular verses in the Bible, and we ought to know what it says, we ought to know what it means, and we ought to know how to use it. If you're here today and you're not yet a person who has received Christ as your savior, you're not yet a Christian, I'm really glad that you're here, and what I'm about to do is actually to explain to you what is one of the most important passages in all the Bible, and my aim is to make it very, very clear what Christianity is all about. And so I hope you'll listen, and I hope you'll reflect on what is in this text. There's something really important here. And you could summarize the entire text that we're going to be looking at today with these words. This passage tells us that we are loved and rescued from condemnation. So get that, we've been loved and rescued from condemnation. And I just wanna unpack this passage and that central idea to help you understand what's going on in John 3, 16 through 21, and then we're gonna make some applications at the end. So first of all, uh, this, this text tells us that we are loved and rescued. Look at verse 16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son. And whoever believes in him should not, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this verse captures the essence of what the Bible is all about. It captures the essence of what Christianity is all about, namely that God saves people. He saves them as they believe in his Son, Jesus, and he does all of this out of his love for them. God so loved the world. Now you notice the first word in verse 16 is the word for. When I was growing up, my pastor used to say whenever you see the word for, you need to look and figure out why it's, what, what it's there for. So for, is a link to an explanation of what was previously said. So in order to know why this passage is here, we need to look back up into chapter three. And if you remember, when we were last in John's Gospel, we were talking about a man named Nicodemus. He was a religious leader. He came to Jesus by night and he had some questions for him about what Jesus was teaching and about who he was. I suggested to you that this conversation was not of a man who was coming in earnest, seeking, sort of in a goodwill sort of sense. I think that Nicodemus was coming with a bit of confrontation. You see, he was part of the religious establishment and Jesus was challenging both the authority of that religious establishment and really serving to to break things up. And so Nicodemus comes to sort of challenge this newfangled rabbi. And what Jesus does in John chapter three is he works Nicodemus over by tearing apart the categories in which Nicodemus trusted him. His aim was to help Nicodemus to see that there was no way that he could change by himself. He wanted Nicodemus to come to an end, a helplessness, if you will, of his religious system. And for him to realize that even though he was in the upper echelons of power and the upper understandings of the law and the prophets and everything that people there in that day esteemed as great, that Nicodemus was in fact lost. And Jesus keeps taking the gospel and moving it further and further away from him, helping Nicodemus to see that his greatest problem was that he thought he could make it on his own. You need to know, friend, that the first step in understanding what the gospel is about is understanding that you cannot do it. Jesus ended his little conversation in part one with Nicodemus by saying this in verse 14 of chapter three, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he uses an Old Testament concept that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. And Jesus said in the same way that the serpent was raised in the Old Testament wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. So he's hard on Nicodemus to point him away from himself. But notice, he doesn't leave Nicodemus without hope. In verses 14 through 15, he not only points Nicodemus to the fact that he could believe in Jesus, but even deeper in verse 16, he digs into the bigger picture of what is really going on, in other words, what lies underneath the lifting up of the Son of Man. And in this passage, we learn that the roots of the gospel are planted in the soil of God's love. Consider that. That the roots of the gospel are planted in the soil of God's love. In other words, in the cross of Christ, what we see is the intersection of two things. We see the intersection of God's love and our rescue. In the crucifixion of Jesus, we see that God saved us and he loved us. In the cross of Christ, we see the great affection that God has for us and the extent to which he would go in order to save us. God demonstrates his love for us, even that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you could summarize this little section in John chapter three with this. Our rescue is rooted in God's love. Or let me make that more personal. If you're a Christian, your rescue was rooted in God's love. Underneath the things that you believed. Underneath the forgiveness that you were granted is the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the love of God. Friend, your loveliness is not the root of your redemption. Don't be offended, but when God got you, he didn't get a good deal. (laughs) When you came to the table, you didn't bring anything but your debts. And yet he set his love on you and his affection on you, so listen, God's loveliness is the root of your salvation, not your worthiness. The hymn writer put it this way, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless and free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. What Jesus wanted to do was to help Nicodemus come to an end of himself and then overwhelm him with the love of God. He wanted Nicodemus to understand that when the Son of Man is to be lifted up, the reason for the lifting up of the Son of Man will be the deep, deep love of God. That's why verse 16 says, for God so loved. The word love is so important. In the original language, it's the word agape, and it refers to the way in which the triune Godhead has love for one another. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit operate in an economy of love. Listen to John 3, 35. The text says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Even more, it's not just the way that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit operate, but it's also the way in which Jesus loved his disciples. Here's John 13:1. Before the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus loved his disciples, the Father and Son and Spirit love one another. When we get to John 13 through 17, later on in our journey in this beautiful gospel, we will see the way in which the word love appears here in those chapters more than anywhere else in the gospel, such that you need to know that for John, love is the foundational concept of his theology. If the foundation of Paul's theology is justification, the foundation of John's theology is love. And those two aren't opposites, they, they overlap, but John understood the love of Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He saw it, he felt it, he was around it, and so John features the beautiful roots of love that are underneath the gospel. And it's no wonder that John even records in John chapter 13 that Jesus calls his disciples to love one another. So the same love that flows out of the Trinity, the same love that Jesus gives to his disciples, he calls upon them to love one another. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the essence of what Christianity is is that God has lavished his love on us, and those who have received that love ought then to love one another. So an unloving Christian is an oxymoron. An unloving Christian probably isn't a Christian. Now the reason that I'm taking so much time on this concept of love is that I think it's important for us to be reminded that when Jesus gets Nicodemus to this point of helplessness, he immediately talks about the love of God. He seeks to overwhelm the helplessness of Nicodemus with the heart of God that is behind the redemption that he offers and this redemption that Nicodemus so desperately needs is motivated by the love that God has for Nicodemus and that for the world. And this is so important for a couple of reasons. First, it's important because if you're here today and you have not yet received Jesus, you need to know, friend, that the reason that Jesus died was because of God's love for you. I don't know what you think about Christianity, what your view of God is, Maybe you've run into some unloving Christians and I'm really sad that that happens. I'm sorry that may have even been your experience. But I want you to know that from the very foundation of what the Bible is about and what Christianity is all about is that the creator of the universe went on a mission to rescue people. And God did that not because he was needy or lonely, or because he felt bad about how things turned out or this wasn't what I anticipated. He sent the Son of God because in the same way that the God of the universe overflows with holiness, he also gushes with love for the created order. He gushes with love for you. And this divine love is deeper and wider and more sacrificial than you can possibly imagine. And the starting point of this gospel, namely that Jesus died for our sins, the starting point is the love of God. So friend, if you're not yet a Christian, just stop and consider this for a moment. God knows you and he loves you. He knows you better than you know yourself and yet he set his love upon you. And as I'll show you in a moment, he offers a sacrifice that is the ultimate expression of his divine love. The second reason this is important is that if you're a Christian and you hear this text, this this should inform how you talk about the gospel, that while it's important for people to know that God is holy and it's important for people to know that they are sinners. It's also critical for them to know that that message comes to them in love. That God set his affection on lost people. He aims to rescue them. And it ought also then, as you ponder and consider the, the power of this love, that then it ought to inform how it is that you treat other people. You think about Easter weekend and those who you might pray about inviting. Invite them not just because they are in need. Invite them because you love them. For God so loved the world. Hmm. The world. Do you know what that means? At one level Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus because he wants Nicodemus's frame of reference to be expanded as a Religious leader in the nation of Israel. He wants Nicodemus to not limit God's love and affection to just the nation of Israel. He wants Nicodemus to know that God's got a bigger plan, a bigger mission, a bigger heart, a bigger affection. That's one of the things it means. Here's the other thing that it means that the word world means cosmos. It refers not just to individuals, but it refers to the entire created order. It means that Jesus' aim is not just to redeem people, but instead to redeem everything that the goodness of God touched and then was marred by the presence of sin. It means to take everything that is broken and to restore it. And the penultimate expression of that is human beings, men and women made in the image of God, nothing else in creation compares to the image-bearing, image-bearing quality of those who reflect the very divine nature of God in their humanity and in their sinful lost condition. They are the ultimate expression of what is wrong in the world, but we aren't the only expression of what's wrong in the world. And Jesus comes not just to save people, he comes to save people so that then the whole world in which they live can be transformed. Imagine what that will be like to live in a world where there is no death or dying or cancer or sadness. There's no more talking about sin, no more confession, no more asking for forgiveness. It's all good, all Jesus, all joy, all ever, forever, and ever, and it never ends. Wow, won't that be amazing? It won't snow in springtime anymore. Said to throw that in there. God loves the world. What happens is that God's love will go as far as the brokenness of the created order has gone. There will not be one element left of brokenness in creation. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Notice here, God doesn't just love affectionately. He doesn't just love emotionally. Emotionally, he loves sacrificially. Here is the sacrificial act of God that becomes the basis of how we understand what Christianity is all about. Jesus enters into the mess of our humanity. He lives as a man and he lives as a man by the motivation of his love for the world such that Jesus teaches out of love. He lives out of love. He dies out of love. He's lifted up on the cross and in doing so demonstrated in a way that no other action could possibly demonstrate on planet earth that God has set his love to rescue people. Our rescue is rooted in God's love. And the effect is a stunning promise. Notice that it says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The promise is, is this. Listen to me. Whoever believes is rescued. Whoever It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, how long it's been, God sets his affection on you and the Bible says, "By, by its very promise, if you believe, you will live. Do you know how important that is? Friend, that's important because if you were to stand before God at the judgment day and if he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, your only answer on that day is because you promised you promised that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Your only hope of eternal life, your only hope of forgiveness is not in what you have done but in what God has promised about what you've done. The whole essence of your future and the substance of what it means for you to be rescued is not based upon you, it's based upon God and his promise. It's remarkable here, God saves people. He rescues sinful people from the brokenness that is both around them and the brokenness that is in them. He saves them from the frightening consequences of a broken world, which is eternal punishment in hell. So if you're here today and you've not yet put your trust in Christ, friend, this is one of the clearest texts in the Bible. Here's the deal, God knows you. He knows what you're like. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've not done. And yet, listen, he still loves you. And the greatest demonstration of the fact that he loves you is the fact that he sent his son in the world in order to rescue you. You may think Christianity is full of judgmental people and in our worst, that's true. We're not perfect people, we're broken, and sometimes Christianity gets off the rails on the wrong end of the perspective. And yet, what the Bible tells us here is that the essence of Christianity is not just an obedience that God calls us to, which is true, but a love that leads the way in calling people, inviting them to change and be saved. An all-knowing, all-powerful, righteous God makes the greatest sacrifice that you and I could ever imagine in the sending of his son for the sins of wayward people. And you need not wonder why. The Bible tells us God so loved the world. Do you know how significant that is? How important it is to know that God loves you, even though he knows you? Tim Keller suggests that that reality, known and loved, is one of the deepest needs of the human heart. It's what some of you have been chasing all your life, to be known and loved. Keller, writing about marriage, says this, to be loved but not known is superficial. But to be, And to be known but not loved is our greatest fear. It sounds like this in your head. If they knew, they wouldn't really love me. But to be fully known and to be fully loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Why? Because it meets the most foundational need of every human being. And when that happens, hear me, you are free like you can't believe. You can't even believe how free you are. He knows me, he loves me, he saved me, he rescued me. Everything about me is all because of him. That is how Christianity is liberating at so many levels. And friend, if you're not yet a Christian, that is what you are missing as you try to put your affections and find your fulfillment in all sorts of other things, and they don't work. You can shift jobs and relationships, you can switch substances, and you can switch locations. You can change your name, your appearance, but you keep bringing the same you to the table, and that's the problem. And the beautiful reality of what happens in the gospel is this, Jesus saves me from me. And that's what I needed, and that's what I couldn't do. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, we are loved and rescued here's the second thing that we are rescued from something we're rescued from condemnation so god's love and rescue are amazing because of what god saves us out of or what he rescues us from verse 18 makes it clear listen whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe who does not believe is condemned already Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People loved darkness rather than light because their works are evil. So here's the stunning thing that John tells us He tells us that Jesus doesn't come into the world to bring condemnation, he tells us that the condemnation is already here. Jesus doesn't come in the world just to bring a dividing line. That dividing line is already here. He makes it clear that that exists. But Jesus doesn't come to bring condemnation. He merely uncovers the condemnation which is already present both around us and in us. In other words, the world is already broken and in need of redemption. Or to make it personal, we are already broken and in need of redemption. He lists Some characteristics of the broken world in verse 19. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light. They do. People would rather hide their their faults than have them exposed. The story of humanity is this constant hiding or pretending that we are something when behind the scenes we're not. And our greatest fear is that we'll finally be exposed for who we really are some of you in your employment. That's the thing you're afraid of. In the conference room, the reason that you act the way that you do at times is because you're afraid somebody's gonna realize this guy shouldn't be in this job or she doesn't know what she's talking about. And that fear causes us to do all sorts of crazy things in order to try and present ourselves as better than what we really are. And that's just one example that I could give of all sorts of examples of the way in which we don't come to the light because fundamentally we're broken people. Instead, we hide our brokenness and our sinfulness. Just like Adam and Eve. When they knew that God was in the garden, their first action was to get away from God and to hide. And human beings have been doing that ever since. Think how true, of this, how true this is in your life. Think back to the things in your life that you regret. We all have them. Consider how embarrassing they are. And my guess is that those things were not only wrong, but they also create some level of shame and hiding. And what happens is that Jesus comes into the midst of this hiding and shame-filled culture. He enters our humanity in the midst of its terrible messiness, and the sending of Jesus into the world is the means by which the world is freed from its condemnation. He doesn't increase the condemnation. He provides a path out of condemnation. In other words, he provides the means by which you can be rescued from the guilt that you feel. The fact of the matter is that our world isn't getting better. The created order, rather, is just marking time until the final day of reckoning. And every time something surfaces in the world that's related to sinfulness, we see the problem clearly and we know that the sentence has already been pronounced. And it sounds like this in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. Every funeral, every cancer diagnosis, every addiction, every failed marriage, every wayward child, every act of immorality tells us something is terribly wrong. And the fact of the matter is is that we have this this chasm in our own soul that we're trying to fill. And Jesus comes to fill that gap and to complete what at present is incomplete. So Jesus doesn't come to bring judgment, he comes to bring hope. And the person who puts his or her faith in Christ, rather than running from the light, now comes to the light. See what the text says, verse 20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, doesn't come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen, here it is, that his works have been carried out in God. Here is the crazy thing that happens when you become a Christian. That suddenly now, before you used to resist acknowledging that you're broken, and suddenly now, because of the rescuing of Christ, you are acknowledging that you are broken and you come to the light because you know all you got is Jesus. You come and you say, I got nothing, I bring nothing to the table except I know one thing. I know Jesus and he rescued me from my sin. And so it changes how you live in the world, that your freedom now is defined not only by being rescued from your sins but now being freed from the guilt of which you constantly used to live in. Jesus takes the placard of guilty and he wears it, so you take his placard of righteous and you wear that, not because you've earned it, but because Jesus bought it for you. So, what do we do with this text? Let me give you two applications. First, for those of you who are believers in Jesus, when you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, you not only had a heart that was made clean, you had a heart that then was made to worship. And when I go through this text, and I read this passage, there ought to be something within you that just is filled with wonder at the greatness and goodness that God loves you. I mean, you know you. You know you better than you know anybody else. I know my sin issues, I don't know your sin issues. I am the biggest sinner that I know because I know what I've done. You're the biggest sinner that you know because you know what you've done. And here's the thing, God set his love on you and Jesus died for you in order to make you clean and a new person and your life has been radically transformed by the person and work of Christ. And the fact of the matter is that the more you know about the brokenness in the world, the more you know about the brokenness of your own heart, you ought to find your heart beating with a new level of wonder and worship of who Jesus is. And then you also ought to find all sorts of ways to live out your Christianity by loving others because love is not just the root of the gospel, it's the fruit of the gospel. Friend, the world doesn't need to see any more unloving Christians. And then secondly, to those of you who have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ, you're not a Christian yet. You're here and you're searching, and I'm just so glad that you're here, especially on this Sunday. And just know, like that can't happen by accident. Like, you came here for this text, and you didn't even know this text was gonna be preached, and yet here you are. And friend, that is not by coincidence. I wanna appeal to you yet for a third time. I want you to look around you. I want you to look inside of yourself. I want you to look at your past, and I want you to think about your future. Don't you see brokenness? Been for real, man, you've got this, this gaping hole in your heart, in our culture, in relationships. You know something is terribly wrong. And the Bible diagnoses it. The Bible tells us that that thing that's wrong in the world, both around us and in us, is sin, and sin has caused damage at so many levels, and yet the Bible says the good news is that God loves the world. He loves you, that's why Jesus came. And the whole reason why Jesus came into the world is to rescue you from the sin that's around you, to rescue the sin, you from the sin that is in you, in fact, to rescue you who are still doing the sins that you don't want to do anymore. Jesus hung on the cross and was broken so that you could be rescued from the brokenness that you keep going back to. He became sin for you. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of trying to make it on your own? The first step in becoming a Christian is coming to the conclusion, I can't do this. And the second step is seeing in the Bible that the Bible says, but Jesus can. To know that he loved you and rescued you from condemnation, and what you must do is to believe. To believe that God exists, that you're not righteous, that Jesus came and God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, have eternal life. God rescued us through his love. Lord Jesus, we ask for you by your spirit to now penetrate our hearts wherever they need to be penetrated and Hearing the message from John 316. God make us a people who will listen. And even now, let this day today, let March 31st, 2019, be the day when many moved from death to life. Lord do that right now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.